uh, our co-host is Maria F. and Sue L. If you have any question during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. Uh, the chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the question and answer session. Please note that the speaker Harlan G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answer ses session which follows will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we'll post a link to our seven tradition. This money goes toward the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we will also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. So I am now very happy and grateful to turn the meeting over to Harlan G. Thank you very much, Dottie. I'm so happy to be here. I, I say this all the time, but I've never really been happier to be here than this morning. Last Wednesday into Thursday, I knew something was wrong. I knew something was up. I hadn't been sick for years. I mean, I I used to get bronchitis once a year. I would get colds like everyone else. But for whatever reason, during the pandemic, I didn't get sick at all. Maybe it was the masks. Maybe it was the increased hand washing. Maybe it was increased vigilance on certain things. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But what I can tell you is last Wednesday night into Thursday, I knew that something was wrong. And then Thursday, I was sick and I couldn't work. I didn't walk. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't walk. I didn't go swimming. I didn't do anything. I knew that I was sick. And then last Friday, I had to make a decision. And the decision was an easy decision that I could not do this last Saturday. I knew that I was too sick and my voice was just gone. My voice was just gone. So I just before I say a word, I want to thank John K and Heidi H. Um, John, I've known a long time. He did it on the last minute. Heidi did it on the last minute. Ironically, with Heidi, I knew Heidi's father and I knew Heidi's grandmother and grandfather on her maternal side. And so I feel a very strong uh, kinship with her. I feel very strong kinship with her. We also were born into the same neighborhood in Chicago, Heidi and I. We She started out at the same little grammar school that I went to. It was a little K through six grammar school, and we both started out <clears throat> at the same one. Uh, my voice is not 100%. I'm just going to do the very best I can. I've laid in a, a, a large... Uh, uh, supply of uh, water in case I can't talk, but I should be able to. But I do want to thank Heidi and uh, John Kay for filling in at the last minute. And they did such a wonderful, wonderful job. I listened to both of them on uh, recording on scottsdalebigbook.com. And I was just blown away by the two of them. They were just so wonderful. Uh, it was weird for me. I was sound asleep during this session last week. I was running uh, a fever uh, all day Friday, 
and I ran, I went to the doctor and the doctor put me on a drug that is usually used to treat COVID. And it's the, it's the common drug that they give you if to treat COVID. And all of a sudden the doctor calls, or doctor tells me in the office, call your cardiologist and make sure you tell your cardiologist or not tell, but ask your cardiologist if you can avoid taking your Xarelto. Xarelto is a blood thinner that I take because I have chronic AFib, atrial fibrillation of the heart. And they says, well, tell, call the doctor and make sure you ask, is it okay? Because this drug is contraindicated for Xarelto. Anyway, so I get the drug in a kind of a roundabout way. They were out of it at my drugstore here. They were out of it over there. I guess COVID in, in Maricopa County is making sort of a resurgence. So I had to go eat. I had to go west to go get it uh, on Shea Boulevard, which was fine. I get the drug home. I take it. And the cardiologist's office is on the phone telling me, don't you take that drug. And I said, I already took it. So they said, well, don't take it anymore. We're calling you in another prescription. Now, remember, I wasn't at the cardiologist for COVID. I went to the regular doctor. So I, the cardiologist's office says, we are calling you in another drug for COVID that will not interfere with your Xarelto. Okay, fine. That drug they had. They says, absolutely not. You are not to stop taking your heart medication because this virus loves the heart and we're not giving you permission to stop and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine, fine, fine. So I switched horses in midstream. So I ran fevers on Thursday. I ran fevers on Friday. Almost immediately upon taking this drug and the other drug too, I was just turning around. I think that was the last of the fevers I ran, but it's like 115, 118 outside. And I'm sitting here with blankets, plural, not one blanket, two, three blankets. And I'm shivering like I'm in Chicago on Lakeshore Drive in January. I mean, I can't stop shivering. I must have bit my lip like three times from the shivering. I just bit into my lip. So that wasn't pleasant. I didn't like doing that. So anyway, so I took the drug and then Saturday was a full cycle. Sunday was a full cycle. But by the time Sunday special edition came along, I didn't want to cancel that because it was only seven minutes. But I was doing, if you remember, if you if you listened to special edition last week, I um, I did the 12 step. I couldn't even, I couldn't even, I was screaming at the top of my lungs just to be heard. So my chest is killing me because I'm, I'm like screaming at the top of my lungs, uh, you know, to, to be heard. Uh, so anyway, that went okay. But the one thing I will say about this COVID, man, it sucks the life out of you. I cannot tell you I have not slept this much probably since I was in diapers. I've had two knee replacements. I've had two hip replacements. I've had 19 hours of plastic surgery. I've been ill. I've been, I've had all, I've had shingles. I've had all kinds of stuff. I do not ever remember being this tired 
I mean, I wake up and I come downstairs because I have a, a, um, a two level house. I have a small house, but it's on two levels. I come downstairs. And by the time I get downstairs, that easy chair looks real good. I'm ready to take a nap. And I've been unable to really work. I've made a little money this week, nothing to get excited about. I made a little money. I was able to squeeze a couple of sales out here and there, but nothing like I could have done if I, you know, if I was at full strength. Um, but it's 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 been a it's been something. And you know, I was just really surprised because for years I was able to escape uh COVID. You know, I was not one of the ones that had it, you know, and so it, it was like everybody was that was getting it was not me. So all of a sudden, like, here we are, it's three years after the fact, after the initial, you know, the initial charge of it. And here I am getting it. So I was surprised. I was really shocked to, to, to come down with it. Um, so. It was it was quite a shock, but anyway, um, I've, I've I know some of you are, have been asking me. Yes, I've taken the vaccines. I don't want to get into a political thing about vaccines and should you, shouldn't you? I don't care what you do. Whatever you do with it is your business. I'm just telling you, I took them all. I had five of them, and they never tell you when you take these that it's going to prevent you from getting it. What they tell you is it's going to prevent the symptoms from overwhelming you. And I found that to be the case, even though I was plenty sick and I'm not out of the woods yet. I was not, you know, in, in a hospital on a ventilator dying. You know, I'm still alive. I'm able to, you know, do whatever. And tomorrow is the day where I'm released, you know, that I can go out and I can, you know, I can do stuff whatever, you know, uh, I want, I I normally go to lunch on Saturday after this is over, which I miss, but there's no way. I mean, I get, I get these people so sick, they wouldn't know what hit them. So there's no way, but, uh, and they're not here anyway. Um, but the bottom ones in, in uh, Illinois and ones, uh, in Flagstaff, but the bottom line is, is that, um, my, uh, what do you call it? My, uh, my release date is tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to that. And I fully intend on going to the grocery store. I know I have to mask up. I know that, but I have to, I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to do my shopping. I'm going to go get whatever I need. And it's like, you know, it's like I've been set free. I've been just, you know, set free by this thing because tomorrow is my day. You know, tomorrow I'm free to leave the house. And I'm just free as a bird to go where I want and do. As long as I'm masked up, I'm good. So it is a little toasty to be wearing a mask. It's going to probably be 116, 117 degrees tomorrow. Uh, obviously, I don't want to wear a mask. But hey, you know, there's worse things in life. There's worse things uh, than having to wear a mask. It's, it's, it's not a real big price to pay. Uh, you know, for for the freedom that I can get uh, by going out and doing the things that I want, I need to do and so on and so forth. So anyway, I'm very, very happy to be here this morning. I know I say this all the time, but trust me, this is a whole new level of euphoria 
this is a whole new level of ecstasy that I am here and that I'm back among the living because one week ago today, I was on that easy chair because I couldn't walk up the stairs to go to bed. I had to sleep on that chair for three nights, four nights running. I couldn't walk up the stairs. That was out of the question. I didn't trust myself not to fall. And so I slept on that easy chair, which is fine. It's not, the, it's not the, certainly there are worse things in life than sleeping on a, a lazy boy chair, which is, you know, a recliner and all that. There's worse things. But one week ago today, I, I was lucky I could walk to the bathroom and back and not just, you know, be exhausted and just, oh, my head would just be spinning around in a circle. So when I say, as I said, when I say I'm glad to be here, boy, boy, this is a whole new level of being glad to be here. So once again, before I leave this for, for, for the time, I want to thank Heidi H. And I want to thank John K., two very special people in my life who did a wonderful job. And they did this at the last second, literally less than 24 hours before this session was to start, I called them and asked them, would they help? Neither one of them hesitated one iota. Not, they never, absolutely, what do you want us to do? What is the time frame? They were both on the same page. <sighs> so I'm just very, very glad that they were able to fill in. And again, as I say, at the very last second, less than 24 hours before this uh, session was to begin. I am so glad that you guys are back with me. Thank you for bearing with me. Uh, thank you for everything. Thank And thank you all uh, for the outpouring of support. I got a lot of phone calls. Sometimes I was able to take the calls and sometimes I was just not able to take the calls. I was just too sick. I was just too, I was too out of it. My head was just spinning around in a circle and I got back to you guys, whoever called, I got back to you guys, but thank you so much for the outpouring of support, both in texts, telephone calls, emails, what have you. Uh, and it just, it really, you know, it's a proven fact. It actually is a proven fact that when people have people in their life, they live longer and they live better. It's an absolute proven fact that people make people live longer and live better. So I'm very, very grateful to have all of you as my extended family. I'm, I'm a very lucky, lucky guy. We have been talking about the chapter Two Wives, and it's a chapter that a lot of people skip over. And it's a chapter that in, in history brought about a lot of controversy. Uh, Lois Wilson felt that she was the most qualified to write this, to write this chapter, and she wanted to write it. Bill Wilson was a political mover and shaker from within the ranks, and he wanted Ann Smith to write this chapter because we look at the history of AA and we think to ourselves things 
that may not be true. The groups in Akron were not really on board with this book being written. They believed that this was a money-making scheme by Bill Wilson and Hank Parkhurst. And a lot of them in Akron were not crazy about Bill Wilson or Hank Parkhurst. Some of them accused Dr. Bob of lying and, and they were trying to say that Dr. Bob actually knew Bill from years ago and that this whole thing was a scam. And some of them were very reluctant to submit their stories. Earl Treat, who founded AA in Chicago, he refused to submit his story for the first edition. Bill Dotson refused to submit his story for the first edition. And there were others who refused as well. They felt that if they're going to contribute to Bill Wilson making all this money on this book, that they somehow should be compensated. And Bill couldn't compensate anyone. He didn't know, you know, when the book first came out, you couldn't give it away. You couldn't give it away. And at $3.50 a copy, there's just not a lot of wiggle room there to compensate a bunch of people. And so they refused to submit it. But he felt, Bill felt, Bill felt that if he could get Ann Smith to write this chapter, that it would go well to convincing the people in Akron that he was on the level because Bill Wilson knew that Ann Smith was very, very much uh, trusted. She was very trusted there. And if she said that the book was legitimate, which she did, it would go a long way for them to trust that it was all on the up and up, which it was. And so Ann Smith was offered the authorship of this chapter and she refused, she turned it down. And everyone assumed that Bill would just let Lois write this chapter. Well, that proved to not be the case. There was also a story in the back of the big book in the first edition. And there was one of the stories, and that is uh, to the wife of an alcoholic. And uh, he let someone else in Akron write that story, not Lois. And I don't know Al-Anon history, as well as I know AA history, but I have a sneaking suspicion that because there was resentment in Lois over this whole thing of her not writing this chapter, that may have either been the reason or a contributing reason why the Al-Anon program does not recognize the big book of AA as approved conference-approved literature. I have a feeling that may be part of the reason or the reason itself. I don't know for sure. But what I can say is, is that Lois bore a resentment about this uh, for a very long time. Remember, she was an Al-Anon and she was not above resentments and she was not above fears and selfishness and dishonesty and, you know, all these other, these five defects of character. And so... Uh, this was a controversy, but the chapter was written by Bill Wilson. Now, the only chapters of the book that are written by people other than Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson does fill in certain things 
in the doctor's opinion, but primarily the doctor's opinion is written by William Duncan Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth, who was the little drunk that loved, the little doctor who loved drunks. And the chapter to employers, which we will get to, not today, the chapter to the employer was written by Hank Parkhurst. And Hank was a very adamant agnostic, uh, bordering on atheism, probably more atheistic than agnostic. And it is the only chapter in the book that does not mention the word God. It does not mention the name or the word God in that chapter to employers. It's the only chapter like that in the book. But Bill Wilson wanted to keep the book for alcoholics by alcoholics. And so this was preserved as a book that was for alcoholics by alcoholics. Very important, very important. We're at the bottom of 111. We're at the bottom of 111. And before I'll give you a chance to get to that page. And before we start, I'm just gonna sort of bring you back up to speed. We've been talking about this chapter, Two Wives, and we have been talking about how the wives are instructed to deal with the alcoholic or the heavy drinker or the moderate drinker in their life. And this is a chapter that if you really look at it, you will find that it is really an extension of step 12. Because when in step 12, step 12 is a three-part step. The first part being having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. That's instruction number one. Who can be a sponsor? Anyone that's had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. Now, what is the function of, of that to carry this message? Not a message, not my message, not your message, not some message but the message of the big book. That's the only message we have. And then last but not least, to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So if I'm going to practice these principles in all of my affairs, let's first know what these affairs are. Well, the first chapter is to the wife. So you have a significant person in your life. Maybe you're not married to that person. Maybe they're a friend. Maybe they're a child. Maybe some, somebody in your life probably has a more significant role than others do. So this is an instruction manual on how we deal or how they deal with us and we deal with them. Now, what is the other part of our life? Well, to the family afterwards. Maybe you don't have a family. I don't have one but I have people that are closer to me than other people. I have friends that are this close to me and I have friends that are this close to me and I have friends that are this close to me. So it just depends on who they are and where they fit in in the, in the scheme of things. So that's part of our affairs too. And then last, but certainly not least, we'll get to a chapter called Two Employers. And that's part of our life too. If we work, or if we're part of the world, that is going to be a part of um, that is going to be a part of our um, our world as well. And that is the the employer, the job, the people that we deal with at the office, the clients, the students, the nurses, the doctors, whatever that may be for you. These are our affairs. 
So at the bottom of page 111, we have been talking about how we are talking to husbands number one, two, three, and four. And uh, we're going to take it from here. The very last sentence of this page is when a discussion does arise. And that is where we're going to start today. We're on page 111. When a discussion does arise, you might suggest, now I'm at the top of page 112, and this famous trivia question, what are the three most important words in the book? Well, they're at the top of 112. What are the first three words of 112? Read this book. Couldn't get more important words than that. It, it's telling you to read this book. I would agree. Those are the three most important words in the book. Read this book or at least a chapter on alcoholism. So we are instructed to tell people to read the chapter on alcoholism. That's called more about alcoholism. And that is a chapter that is descriptive of this condition. And much of that chapter comes from information that is uh, from a book by Richard Peabody. And the book is called The Common Sense of Drinking. And the common sense of drinking is very important because Richard Peabody, he got right up to the spiritual, but didn't cross the line. He believed that alcoholism could be alleviated by a change of environment or change of jobs, change of habits, things like that. And of course, we know that that's not the case. That's not going to remove your alcoholism. But what Peabody did was he gave us a beautiful description of alcoholism. And what else did Peabody do? He cited that there were three properties of alcoholism. Now there's two characteristics of alcoholism. And the characteristic is the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body, that we all have that. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't be compulsive overeaters, right? We wouldn't. And the twist of the mind is accompanied by its sidekick, uh, and the sidekick is called uh, the, men the mental blank spot, the built-in forgetter. But there are three characteristics of this disease. Number one, it is permanent. It never goes away. We see the, the story in the big book of a man of 30 who was doing a great deal of spree drinking. And as such that he was doing a great deal of spree drinking, he decided that he was going to remain bone dry until he made a lot of money. And he remained bone dry for 25 years. For 25 years, he did not touch a drop of liquor, but he was dry drunk. He wasn't really in recovery. He was dry drunk. And there's a world of difference. A dry drunk is someone that goes on a diet and recovery is someone that is working the steps It is in recovery. That's the difference. So he didn't touch a drop for 25 years. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle. And as such, when he, when he brought out his carpet slippers in a bottle, he was dead within four years. So the three characteristics of the disease that Bill Wilson didn't come upon but learned from Peabody are it is permanent. It is progressive. What does that mean? It's progressive. That means that whether you are drinking or not, whether you are eating or not, 
your disease is getting worse every single day. I haven't been binging for 24 years. Does that mean my disease is arrested? Hell no. Does that mean my disease is getting better? Hell no. My disease is getting worse and worse and worse and worse, whether I'm eating or not. That there is no let up in the progression of this disease. What is the last of the characteristics that is described by Peabody that if the disease is untreated, it is fatal 100% of the time. I watched my mother die from this disease. My mother would not listen to anybody. She was going to eat what she wanted to eat and she was going to do what she wanted to do. And there was no reasoning with her. And obviously she wasn't in any modicum of any recovery at all. She had her leg amputated and she had dialysis. She was on dialysis. She had uh, her kidneys failed. She had gangrene in the other leg and they were going to take the other leg too, but she was just too sick and she died and they, they never did that. She passed away before they were able to take off her other leg. But the doctor did tell me that there is gangrene in the other leg. And if she wasn't as sick as she was, they would go in and amputate immediately. So let's go over this again. The disease has two characteristics the twist of the mind and the allergy of the body. Those are the two characteristics. And the twist of the mind is accompanied by the mental blank spot, which is the built-in forgetter. So two characteristics, mind, body. The three, the three characteristics of the disease are, it is permanent. It never goes away. You can be abstinent. You can be in recovery. We hear this all the time. We hear this every day. We hear, well, when I'm in the meeting, my disease is in the parking lot doing push-ups. And that's a good way of saying it. But what we need to do is be a little more explicit so that people understand that there is no immunity. The only thing that gives us some immunity from this is on page 89, it says, nothing ensures immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. And this is why I do not understand people who say they're not going to sponsor. That's an 11-step program, not a 12-step program. And ultimately, that doesn't work because what do we know about half measures? They avail us nothing. They avail us absolutely nothing. So we have to work a 12-step program or we're just kidding ourselves. We're just fooling ourselves. Okay. So permanent, progressive, and fatal. I have a friend in Oklahoma. He's a character. He is a character and a half. How he doesn't have his own show on TV, I don't know. He's clever and he's got uh, he's got just a million of these, but he is amazing. And he says the disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal because he likes to keep it simple. So it's the three P's: permanent, progressive, and fatal. And he's a card. He's he's a he's a pill. He's a character and a half. And he lives in Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's just a character. Many of you know him.
I'm at the top of 112. Tell him you have been worried, though perhaps needlessly, you think he ought to know the subject better as everyone should have a clear understanding of the risk he takes if he drinks too much. Show him you have confidence in his power to stop or moderate. Say you do not want to be a wet blanket, that you only want him to take care of his health. Thus, you may succeed in interesting him in alcoholism. Let's hope that you do. Let's hope that you will. Because we as addicts, we go back to the doctor's opinion. And what does the doctor's opinion tell me? Although we know it is injurious. That means I know I'm killing myself. I, I have vivid, vivid memories of, of being in grocery stores at 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 pounds, knowing that I was dying, knowing that I was dying. And I'm sitting there and I'm eating Malamar cookies or Chips Ahoy or Oreo cookies out of the container because I can't even wait to get out of the store and pay for it because those Chips Ahoy were going to do something for me, for me, that nothing else could do. I'm going to shut down the, um, the waiting room because it's just so distracting and my head is like not where it should be. So forgive me, but I'm going to, uh, I'm going to stop the, I'm going to stop the waiting room because it's just flashing all these names and we're letting everyone in anyway, which is fine, but I'm going to stop it because it's giving me a bit of a, giving me a bit of a mashuga head, which is a crazy head. So please forgive me, but I've, I've, I've stopped the enablement of the waiting room for right now. I went with it as long as I could, guys. Come on. All right. Now, so we have a situation where we have this factor of alcoholism or compulsive overeating. We know we're killing ourselves, and yet we do it anyway. Why do we do it anyway? Well, because the payoff is there, and we're willing to risk our lives. We're willing to risk death so that we can get this immediate fix of the chips ahoy, get this immediate fix of the candy, the cookies, the cakes, whatever it is that we're looking for. This is something that gives us tremendous, tremendous upside. And Dr. Silkworth calls it the effect. And this effect is so elusive that we will pursue this to the gates of insanity or death. Let's continue. We're at the top of 112. Uh, if he, show him you have confidence in his power to stop or moderate. Say you do not want to be a wet blanket, that you only want him to take care of his health. Thus, you may succeed in interesting him in alcoholism. Hopefully you can. He probably has several alcoholics among his own acquaintances. You might suggest that you both take an interest in them. Drinkers like to help other drinkers. Your husband may be willing to talk to one of them. Well, sometimes that can get someone's attention too. I've seen people rise from the disease because it was made clear to them that they and they alone have the power to help others who are suffering from this addiction. They have the power because they speak and understand the language of the heart. And Dr. Silkworth tells us 
that in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. And for us to have depth and weight means we have to have experienced this. We have to have experienced the illness and the recovery in order to be effective messengers to the person who is still suffering from this disease. I'm in the middle of 112. If this kind of approach does not catch your husband's interest, it may be best to drop the subject. But after a friendly talk, your husband will usually revive the topic himself. This may, may take patient waiting, but it will be worth it. Meanwhile, you might try to help the wife of another serious drinker. If you act upon these principles, your husband may stop or moderate. Here's the message that I'm getting from that paragraph, and it is a universal message of service that has been interwoven into the book from the very beginning of the book to the very end of the book, and that is, when all other measures fail, work with another alcoholic will save the day. And it says it in so many areas. If we look at this book, how many, and I don't want to go through everything, but it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. In another part of the book, it says to be helpful is our only aim. In another part of the book, it tells me that I cannot play the Good Samaritan once in a while, that I must be on the firing line of service every day. This is on and on and on. Remember that we come from the Oxford groups and the Oxford groups were people that were practicing first century Christianity to the very best of their ability. And as such, they were people that gave of themselves in an altruistic movement. And uh, Dr. Silkworth calls us an altruistic movement. What does that mean, altruism? Altruism means that we give with no expectation of a result. So from one end of this book to the other, it teaches me that if I want to heal, if I want to get better, if I want to have a better life, there's nothing complicated here. There's absolutely nothing complicated here. The only thing I must do is help other people. Dr. Bob, at the end of his life, he took one of his prescription pads and he wrote something that a lot of you have seen online. You may have a copy of it. It's all over the place. It's very ubiquitous. He writes prescription for a good life. And he writes, clean house, trust God, clean house, and help others. Trust God, clean house, and help others. And if you want to know what this program really is about, when you boil the meat from the bone, it's about trust God, clean house, and help others. And if you'll do that, trust God, clean house, help others, you will work the steps and you will never, ever find it necessary to compulsively overeat throughout any of the days of your life. It will not happen. Will not happen. I'm almost at the bottom of 112. Suppose, however, that your husband fits the description of number two. 
The same principles which apply to husband number one should be practiced. But after his next binge, ask him if he would really like to get over drinking for good. Do not ask that he do it for you or anyone else. Just would he like to? And that's a very good question. And the question that I had when I first came in was, I didn't want to give up anything. I just wanted to die. I just wanted to die. I saw no reason to live. I couldn't live with the food. I couldn't live without the food. I just saw no reason for any of this at all. I really didn't. But once I got into recovery, I saw that I had a life beyond my wildest dreams. I really did have a life and I still do have a life beyond my wildest dreams. The I'm at the bottom of 112. The chances are he would show him your copy of this book and tell him what you have found out about alcoholism. Show him that as alcoholics, the writers of the book understand. Tell him some of the interesting stories you have read. If you think he will be shy on a spiritual remedy, ask him to look at the chapter on alcoholism. Then perhaps he will be interested enough to continue. There's only one way out. It says in chapter three, it intimates in chapter four, and it intimates throughout the book. We have a disease that only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, I've never had a spiritual experience, but I've had a spiritual awakening. What is the difference? A spiritual experience is very sudden and profound. Very, very sudden and profound. A spiritual awakening is slower to develop. It is a slower process. But the neutrality, the benign neutrality that I feel today toward food is identical. Now, Bill described in his, in his story, he described the white light. He described God coming into his hospital room and he, he talked about it and how the room just filled with light and you know, he, he felt as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through, and he knew he was done drinking. He knew pretty much at that time that he was not going to drink anymore. And that is exactly what proved to be. That was exactly the case. So I had a spiritual awakening. I don't know too many people, if anybody, I can't think of anybody at, off the top of my head that ever said to me, oh, I had a spiritual experience. That is very quick, very sudden, and very, very profound. Let's continue. We're on page 112. <clears throat> oh, sorry. We're on page 113. Sorry about that. I'm at the top. If he is enthusiastic, your cooperation will mean a great deal. If he is lukewarm or thinks he is not an alcoholic, we suggest you leave him alone. If, if a person is unwilling to admit that they have a problem, it is very difficult to try to convince them that they do. Very, very difficult, if not impossible to convince them that indeed they do. Can I be heard, by the way? Because I can't scream uh, anymore. It just hurts my yeah, chest. Okay, thanks. Because I'm talking lower than I would normally speak. 
but I, I, I have a, a confidence in Zoom that my voice is being picked up. My voice is probably the last thing to heal from COVID. It's probably the last thing to heal. Avoid urging him to follow our program. The seed has been planted in his mind. I'm on 113. He knows that thousands of men, much like himself, have recovered. But don't remind him of this after he has been drinking, for he may be angry. Now, I would always get angry after a binge because I knew that I was destroying myself. I knew that I was tearing myself apart. I was wracked with guilt and shame and just horror, horrible feelings, horrible feelings. It's just a, a horrible thing. Sooner or later, you are likely to find him reading the book once more. Wait until repeated stumbling convinces him he must act, for the more you hurry him, the longer his recovery may be delayed. If you have a number three husband, you may be in luck. Being certain he wants to stop, you can go to him with this volume as joyfully as, joyfully as though you had struck oil. He may not share your enthusiasm, but he is practically sure to read the book and he may go for the program at once. If he does not, you will probably not have to long to, you probably will not have long to wait. Again, you should not crowd him. Let him decide for himself. Cheerfully see him through more sprees. Now that's a very difficult thing to do, cheerfully see him through more sprees, because what happens in so many cases is the family, the children, the, the in-laws, the job, everything gets destroyed by these sprees. So when it says cheerfully see him through more sprees, that's a pretty tall order. You have to be an Al-Anon in really, really magnificent recovery to cheerfully say, oh, that's okay. Boys will be boys. I know you didn't smash up the car uh, on purpose. And I know you didn't break you know, this on purpose. That's very hard to do, but just do the best you can. I don't know that I would be that forgiving. I just don't know. Talk about his condition or this book only when he raises the issue. That's another hard one to do. In some cases, it may be better to let someone outside the family present the book. Oftentimes, it really is. You know, with my mother and father, if my mother would have said to my father, today's Saturday, he would have asked me, what day is it? And if my father would have said to my mother, two and two is four, she would have asked me, how much is two and two? If the information came from the other one, it was immediately suspect. But when information came from outside the dynamic of the two of them, it was often uh, well-received. It was often very, very well-received. So the bottom line is, is that oftentimes information must come from an outside source so that it can be deemed objective. <laughs> and if it, is, if it is deemed objective, <laughs> sorry, then that information can take on more validity, more, more meaning. In some, okay, they can urge action without arousing hostility. That's a very good sentence. If your husband is otherwise a normal individual, your chances are good at, that, at this stage. 
bottom of 113. We're going a little faster than we normally go. And yes, I'm sort of like the airplane pilot when we when we get delayed an hour and we try to make up some of the time in the air. I am trying to make up time in the air. I'm trying to do that, but I'm also this is not real historically discussable. You, there's not a real lot of history here. When there is, I bring it out here, but there's not. You would suppose that men in the fourth classification would be quite hopeless, but this is not so. Many of Alcoholics Anonymous were like that. Everybody had given them up. Defeat seems certain. Yet often such men had spectacular and powerful recoveries. Sometimes the further down you go, the better your recovery because you see graphically that you cannot conquer this on your own. You cannot conquer this by yourself. So sometimes being a low bottom had, its, had its advantages for me in that I was not able to point to a period of time when I could say to myself, you know, there was that time when I was able to control this on my own, or there was that time when I was able to um, diet, you know, successfully or what, what have you. There was just not that time when I could point to that and say, yeah, that sounds like me where I can do it on my own. I have overwhelming evidence Evidence, overwhelming evidence that indeed I cannot do this on my own. There is just no possible way. Okay, we're at the top of 114. There are exceptions. Some men have been so impaired by alcohol that they cannot stop. I don't know that that's true for food. Maybe we have some mental blocks. Maybe we have some hard-headed people out there, but I think if you really want to stop, you can. Sometimes there are cases where alcoholism is complicated by other disorders. Now, I just want to talk about that for a minute, and I do not want to get into a discussion, especially during questions and answers, on outside issues. What are the outside issues? Different personality situations, different mental illnesses, things like that. You have the capacity to recover if you have the capacity to be honest with yourself and say to yourself, indeed, I am a compulsive overeater. Indeed, I need God's help. Indeed, I cannot do this on my own. So if you have the capacity to admit to yourself that you are unable to do this on your own by yourself. I do not see, and please don't try to cite things. I am not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I am not any of those things. I don't know these things intimately, but this is my opinion. Yes, there are people who suffer from various things, but if you have the capacity to see objectively what is going on with you, there should not be a reason under the sun that you cannot recover. There should not be a reason under the sun. Sometimes there are, okay, a good doctor or psychiatrist can tell you whether these complications are serious. 
in any event, try to have your husband read this book. Once again, read the book. His reaction may be one of enthusiasm. If he is already committed to an institution but can convince you and your doctor that he means business, give him a chance. Tr to tr give him a chance to try our method unless the doctor thinks his mental condition too abnormal or dangerous. I cannot imagine anybody thinking that someone's mental condition is too abnormal or dangerous to at least give them a try at this, at this situation. At least give them a shot at this. We make this recommendation with some confidence. For years, we have been working with alcoholics committed to institutions. Since this book was first published, AA has released thousands of alcoholics from asylums and hospitals of every kind. The majority have never returned. The power of God goes deep. So if you are or you have knowledge of someone that has different conditions and they really, really want to recover, what it's telling you is give them a shot. Give them the book. Give them any help that you can give them because there shouldn't be anybody that's precluded from a chance. There shouldn't be anyone that's excluded from a chance to recover. I'm in the middle of 114. You may have the reverse situation on your hands. Perhaps you have a husband who is at large, but who should be committed. Some men cannot or will not get over alcoholism. When they become too dangerous, we think the kind of thing is to lock them up. The kind thing is to lock them up. But of course, a good doctor should always be consulted. The wives and children of such men suffer horribly, but not more than the men themselves. This is a disease of tremendous suffering. Give people a chance. Give them a chance to take a rightful place in society. But sometimes you must start life anew. We know women who have done it. If such women adopt a spiritual way of life, their road will be smoother. So no matter what the situation is, if you have a spiritual program, your life will be smoother. It will be much smoother. Okay. If your husband is a drinker, you probably worry over what other people are thinking and you hate to meet your friends. You draw more and more into yourself and you think everyone is talking about your conditions at home. You avoid the subject of drinking and even with your own parents, you do not know what to tell the children. When your husband is bad, you become a trembling recluse wishing the telephone had never been invented. We find that most of this embarrassment is unnecessary. While you need not discuss your husband at length, you can quietly let your friends know that the nature of his illness. But you must be on guard not to embarrass or harm your husband. It's okay to tell someone that you're sick. It's okay to tell someone, look, I have an illness. I'm a sick person. I have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. I didn't cause it. I didn't, I can't cure it and I can't control it. This disease is beyond me. Now, if I write you a bad check today, I, I, I shouldn't do that. I know better. I knew better then too, but I thought I had no choice. But the bottom line is still this. Bottom line is that we have an illness. We are not bad people trying to get good. We are sick people trying to get well. And we have a situation on our hands where we need God's help if we're going to overcome compulsive overeating. 
But compulsive overeating doesn't just affect what we eat and what we don't eat. It affects how we hate ourselves. It affects how angry we are with others. It affects our outlook on life. It affects so many various things that it is not just about what we eat and what we don't eat. It's about what's eating us. It's about the way we live our lives. We were born into a world of feelings and we were born into a world that is very frightening to us. We were born into a world where we have the manifestations of our defects of character. What are the defects of character? Selfish, dishonest, resentful, self-seeking, and, and, and afraid. Those are the five defects of character. There are no more than five defects of character. Other things are behaviors that come from those behaviors from those defects, laziness, yelling at your wife, yelling at the dog, being late for work. Those are not defects of character. Those are behaviors that come from the defects of character. Okay, now I'm going to need two indulgences. Number one, I want you to indulge me because I need to go to the little boy's room for just a second. I'm going to come back, but when I do, we'll do questions and answers. But before I go, I'm going to ask you to, if you asked a question last time, stay back, let others come to the front, no math and no food. I'm going to excuse myself for two seconds.